Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ron Fine, legal director with the group Free Speech for People, who discusses his concerns regarding the House and U.S. Justice Department's investigations into the pro-Trump January 6th coup attempt. Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, who examines the role of the military in the climate crisis and what's at stake at the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow, Scotland. And Ben Levinson, Deputy Director of Justices Global, who talks about his group's recent all-night vigil, demanding that President Biden do more to distribute COVID vaccines to millions in poor nations around the world. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. The Biden administration is backtracking on its promise to stop offensive weapon sales to Saudi Arabia in support of the kingdom's deadly war in Yemen. The $500 million contract maintains the Saudis' Apache helicopters, which are used in military operations along Yemen's border. President Biden has called the war in Yemen between Saudi-led forces and the Iran-backed Houthis a humanitarian and strategic catastrophe. But critics charge that Washington's contract with the Saudis contradicts the spirit of the White House policy to bar all offensive weapon sales to the kingdom for use against the Houthis in Yemen. The most deadly violation of international humanitarian law involving documented use of an Apache helicopter occurred in March 2017, when a missile from a coalition warship and gunfire from an Apache helicopter struck a boat killing 42 Somali refugees fleeing Yemen for Port Sudan and one Yemeni civilian. There is rising concern about the lack of accountability for human rights violations in Yemen after Bahrain, Russia, and other members of the UN Human Rights Council voted to shut down the war crimes investigation into the conflict. Two years ago, Boston-based Liberty Mutual Insurance Company issued its first sustainability report promising not to underwrite companies with more than 25% exposure to extraction or production of energy from coal. Still, Liberty Mutual ranked 16th among major insurance companies in underwriting fossil fuel producers. Overall, the U.S. insurance industry lags behind corporate America in its commitment to clean energy, while at the same time these companies' profitability directly depends on minimizing the catastrophes caused by global warming. From 2000 to 2009, insurance payouts for climate change-related weather events averaged $19 billion annually. From 2010 to 2019, it was over 50% higher, $31 billion, according to Grist. Last year, claims more than doubled, with insurers paying out $60 billion in 2020 in the U.S. alone. By heavily investing in oil and gas company and energy utility stocks, purchasing fossil fuel and coal firm debt, and underwriting the development of new fossil fuel pipelines and plants, insurance companies are currently propping up the very industry that is expediting their own demise. Insurance companies are financially vulnerable to the ravages of climate change, but today they also happen to be profiting off the acceleration of the climate crisis. 
major foundations and non-governmental organizations active in Africa and the developing world are going through an identity crisis. Over a thousand current and former workers for the aid group Doctors Without Borders accused the award-winning humanitarian group of institutional racism, where European-based managers decide what is best for the world's poor. Despite reforms and calls for social justice, critics say a colonialist mentality pervades humanitarian and global health initiatives. While it remains to be seen how Doctors Without Borders responds to the charges, that conflict brings into focus questions surrounding the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the largest funder in global health, whose motto is fighting poverty, disease, and inequality. The foundation is governed by only two people— Bill Gates and Melinda French Gates, who continue to co-chair the foundation following their divorce. Until recently, there was a third member of the Board of Trustees, another white billionaire, Warren Buffett. The Nation magazine examined 30,000 charitable grants the foundation has awarded over the past 20 years and found that more than 88% of the donations, or $63 billion, have gone to recipients in the wealthiest, whitest nations— including the United States, Canada, Australia, and European countries. In essence, the Gates Foundation funds the rich to help the poor. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the House Select Committee pursues its investigation into the January 6th pro-Trump attack on the U.S. Capitol in a failed effort to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, several former Trump administration officials have defied subpoenas and refused to testify about their role in the insurrection. Those officials include Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, his deputy Dan Scavino, and former Chief White House strategist Steve Bannon. Although the House voted to hold these men in contempt of Congress, it's unclear whether or not the U.S. Justice Department, under Attorney General Merrick Garland, will move to prosecute them. It's also unknown if the Justice Department has launched any investigations into potential federal criminal or civil violations that may have been committed by former President Trump during his four years in office. There's a growing body of evidence that the planning of the January 6th Capitol insurrection involved members of Congress and key White House officials. As recounted in an October 24th Rolling Stone magazine article, these legislators and their aides, who were involved in the planning, were promised a presidential pardon by far-right Representative Paul Gosar, Republican of Arizona. Your reporter spoke with Ron Fine, legal director with the group Free Speech for People who discusses his concerns regarding the House and U.S. Justice Department investigations into the pro-Trump January 6th coup attempt, given his belief that to restore the rule of law, it's essential that officials who broke the nation's laws must be held accountable. While we were happy to see these investigations launched, we're extremely disappointed uh, in their progress or lack of progress and worry that if greater action is not taken soon, 
that we're going to have a replay uh, in, in the, the next election, uh, if, if not sooner. And to put a fine point on that, the Department of Justice in particular has been going after the low-level individuals who, who stormed the Capitol, uh, the, you know, the person wearing the hat with horns and the, the, the guy with the cattle prod, uh, but they have not gone after any of the high-level officials that facilitated and helped organize this, whether they were in the White House, whether they were in Trump's command center uh, at a hotel not far from the Capitol. And uh, as just one example, we learned in a Rolling Stone article from a few days ago that some of the uh, planners of these events uh, met repeatedly with members of Congress and their uh, key aides and with the, the White House chief of staff in the, the days leading up to January 6th. We shouldn't be learning about this from Rolling Stone. We should be learning about this from indictments. And the Department of Justice has more investigative tools available to it than the reporters at Rolling Stone. And the, the amount of time that's passed since January 6th without going after top officials has allowed Trump and his inner circle to attempt to repaint the story and, and tell it in a, a different way to make it seem like something very different from what actually happened. So unless uh, the attorney general steps up really quickly, uh, we're in danger of uh, letting the, 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 the top officials who, who planned and promoted and facilitated this get away with insurrection. Review for our listeners a letter your organization recently wrote to Attorney General Merrick Garland urging him to investigate Donald Trump's criminal or civil violations of the law that may have been committed during his presidency. And there's plenty to pick from, from uh, all the news reports we have over the past uh, four to five years. What's been the response from the attorney general's office? What do we know about any uh, task force that has been assigned to investigating Trump and violations of law? We called upon uh, Attorney General Garland, even before he uh, was able to uh, take his, his position, to establish an independent task force at the outset um, that would have uh, centralized coordination jurisdiction over all investigations related to Trump and his inner circle. And those could fall into a broad range of categories because, uh, unfortunately, uh, Donald Trump's uh, potential criminal violations are, are many. Uh, some of them go back so many years that they might be outside the, the statute of limitations. But you've got everything ranging from his campaign finance violations, Michael Cohen, who named him as, uh, you know, as having directed him in illegal uh, campaign financing for which Michael Cohen actually went to prison and the government referred to Trump as individual one is, is one category. Uh, we've got uh, potential crimes related to uh, bribery and, and other forms of, of improper financial influence coming from uh, the way that uh, payments were made, uh, coming from just the earliest days of his presidency regarding everything from Chinese trademarks to uh, stays at uh, Trump hotels. And of course, the events of January 6th have to loom uh, largest, um, and not just January 6th, but the entire course of conduct uh, from the uh, November 2020 election and Trump's efforts to try and get um, state officials to falsify results and his attempts to tamper with uh, the, the normal processes that, that happen in the states. And what Garland should have done was establish a task force at the outset, name who's in charge of it, 
and then say, and I'm going to step away from that and, and let that task force work as it will. And the, the benefit that would have come if Garland had done that is that on the one hand, it would show that the Department of Justice was serious and was actually looking into these matters. But on the other hand, it would also say that Garland, who is, of course, a political appointee, um, was not going to be uh, micromanaging it, um, and that would give it some increased credibility uh, so that it wouldn't look like it was um, a political, uh, politically motivated type of investigation. Unfortunately, Garland hasn't done any of that, and so uh, as far as we can tell from you know, public records, um, nothing has happened. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there couldn't be something moving very slowly under the surface, behind the scenes, but we're not aware of any uh, you know, federal criminal investigations of Trump or, or of his closest associates, and that's extremely concerning. That was Ron Fine, legal director with the group Free Speech for People and co-author of the book The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Find more views on the January 6th investigation by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. At COP26, the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, where almost all the countries in the world are now gathered to address the climate crisis, the stakes couldn't be higher. While government officials and industry leaders are inside the meetings, frontline climate activists, those dealing with the disruptions to their lives due to the mining, transport, combustion, and disposal of fossil fuels, are raising their voices outside, demanding to be heard. The U.S.-based peace group, Code Pink Women for Peace, founded in 2002 in response to the Bush administration's post-9-11 color-coded threat levels and its then-planned invasion of Iraq, is an organization that works to end war and shift funding away from military spending toward funding basic human needs. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with the group's co-founder, Jody Evans, shortly before she departed the U.S. to Glasgow. Here she talks about how the world's military contributes to the accelerating climate crisis and her expectations for what can be accomplished at the Glasgow UN Climate Summit. War is the greatest contributor to climate change. You know, uses more fossil fuel than 140 countries. It devastates pristine ecosystems. It leaves forever chemicals in the ground. And it destroys the very fabric of our society, as we have seen in the last 20 years in this war on terror. And the fact that the last 20 years of the war on terror cost $22 trillion is a crime against humanity. It is a crime and has murdered more than a million people. This needs to be part of the movement to save the planet. Because don't forget these weapons include nuclear weapons. And one of the things they don't talk about in the effects on climate change is the climate catastrophe that is the nuclear winter. I feel like most climate activists still don't talk much about the role of the military in creating a vast amount of emissions. You know, usually it's all about the fossil fuel companies, the banks, maybe the role of agriculture. Do you feel like Code Pink and other peace groups have made any headway in this regard? Oh, yes. Progress in the last four years has been enormous. And it really started with us taking on BlackRock. So Code Pink took on BlackRock because Fink said that he was a socially responsible investor and they're invested heavily in weapons. So we went after him. And then 
the environmental movement got to recognize, you know, he's invested in everything damaging. So working together on the BlackRock campaign has helped integrate the anti-war movement and the environmental movement. And we've been working together for the last now three years in that process, educating each other about our issues. They've really come to understand the devastation of war to the planet. And, you, you know, not only that, but, you know, these wars are also fought for oil and other extractive, you know, minerals. So it's like they're fought to extract from the planet, which is already, you know, continues the damage to the planet. And all the weapons, $2 trillion of weapons a year are sold globally. That is already a devastation to the planet just to create them. And then if they're used on top of that, it's another devastation to the planet. The U.S. military understands there will be climate change. They understand that. But instead of stopping their participation in creating climate change, they are over-militarizing because when climate change disasters happen, they are going to respond militarily, which is a disaster. And we saw that happen in New Orleans, and we've seen it happen in other places, and that is not the way you respond to climate catastrophe. You respond with care and support to the needs of the people. And, and the fact that their response continues to be militarism is also something we should all be very worried and afraid of. Jody Evans, my expectations are pretty much zero for meaningful results to come out of this climate summit. All these summits just seem like an incredible waste of carbon emissions with thousands of people jetting in from all over the world. What do you hope will come out of it? You know, that's why we call it the Conference of the Polluters. These are the polluters, and these are the people who represent mostly capitalism, which I call the war economy, the extractive, destructive, oppressive economy. And war serves the war economy. And we will not stop war until we stop the war economy. And I think what's important is that the people continue to ridicule and shame those in power for not moving to save people and planet. And, and what's going to come out is what you, know, you want to do. And thank you for having a show and talking about this is we need to talk about it. We need to take our leaders down about it. We need to demand something different for the future of our children and our grandchildren. It's a full on disregard for life and an only regard for money. And we have to stop that. But what happens in the streets and what happens when we share the stories as we're emboldened to continue to be in the streets, we're emboldened by the messages we hear, we're emboldened by the stories we can share so that we can continue to build the movement to stop this madness. This is a movement that needs to continue to grow. And so, of course, very little will come out of COP, as it usually does. Look, the U.S. military is not even showing up. That was Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace. For more analysis and commentary on the role of the military in the climate crisis and what's at stake at the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
The coronavirus pandemic reached a grim milestone when on November 1st, the total of COVID-related deaths around the world reached 5 million. The U.S. has the highest number of COVID fatalities at nearly 750,000, followed by large death tolls in Brazil and India. While the U.S. and other wealthy nations have a surplus of vaccine, a high rate of vaccination, and many now administering a third booster shot, the majority of poor nations around the globe are unable to access enough vaccine to protect their people. The World Health Organization estimates that there's a shortfall of 500 million doses in the global south, while 240 million doses are unused in the west. The number of surplus doses is projected to reach 600 million by the end of the year. This alarming disparity in vaccine distribution, or vaccine apartheid as some have labeled it, has motivated some U.S. activists to engage in direct action to pressure the Biden administration to do more to get vaccines to nations in the global south. The group Justice is Global recently held an all-night vigil at the home of President Biden's coronavirus response coordinator, Jeffrey Zients, urging him to do everything possible to vaccinate the world against the coronavirus pandemic. Your reporter spoke with Ben Levinson, Deputy Director of Justice is Global, who talks about what the U.S. can do, along with other nations, to send vaccines where they're desperately needed. The vast majority of public health um, researchers and experts and Nobel laureates who are Nobel economists say is that we should, if, if we were living in a world that was you know, trying to actually end the pandemic, we would get vaccines to the folks in developing countries first, health workers, folks on the front lines. And we're, we're really doing the opposite. We're giving vaccines to folks in rich countries. We have booster shots now. Um, while like folks in many African countries have like less than 1% of the entire population is vaccinated, and many health workers still are not vaccinated in African, African countries, we're almost a year into having vaccines um, that were highly effective. This led, I mean, almost directly to the Delta variant, which um, has now become one of the dominant variants in rich countries and is threatening people who are even already vaccinated. And so I think this is like what we can see as the beginning of a problem that um, unless we address it, it will be it will become endemic. It's a thing that we will never solve. And COVID comes back year after year. We have to get booster shots like we get the flu um, vaccine year after year. And people in low-income countries continue to experience, you know, the suffering and the um, uncertainty and, you know, the, the death that is something that, like, they're in right now and that we're in together right now. So we're really concerned about this and trying to address the problem, again, as I said, at the, at the root cause. Ben, the Biden administration some months ago issued patent waivers for the coronavirus vaccines, but they have not done what they could do, according to your group and others, to pressure the pharmaceutical companies to share the manufacturing process so that poor nations around the world can make their own vaccines and distribute them locally. Could you say a word about that? There's another wrinkle to this. So the, the U.S. government supported um, the, the waiver on, on intellectual property, um, but it actually has not passed yet because of the opposition of Germany and Switzerland and the U.K. at the, at the World Trade Organization. One piece of campaigning is to push global leaders, and particularly the leaders of these European countries, to support the waiver. Um, and this, this waiver essentially just changes the rules so that 
like folks in global south countries could produce vaccines and not be hit with multi-billion dollar lawsuits. So this, this piece around um, vaccine vaccine waiver is hugely important. It would allow um, many more producers to like really make, make vaccines. And there's precedent for it in um, South Africa in 2002, there was a historic victory around um, and, and led by social movement groups in, in, um, in South Africa who were experiencing like the height of the AIDS crisis. They, they won a waiver similar to this, which allowed them to get antiretroviral treatments and make generic versions um, and, and mass produce them so that folks in, in South Africa could get access to them. And um, they, they, they had a similar kind of waiver. Um, and what it did was it allowed many more antiretrovirals to, to be produced. And because it created generics, it produced, reduced the cost from $10,000 per dose per year to $60 per dose per year, which allowed low-income countries to be able to access them. And so we're asking for essentially the same thing. We need a, a waiver like that. Um, and the U.S. government supports it. It was a historic move on May 5th for the U.S. government to support the waiver. But there's other pieces to an agenda that would allow us to really get to um, the 14 billion that we need. So you talked about technology transfer. Technology transfer is, is one of the other steps. So the, the, the waiver on intellectual property just changes the rules. But if we actually want to support manufacturing, we could share the recipe for the vaccines that we currently have, these highly effective mRNA vaccines that um, was, were, were largely funded by the U.S. government. So the U.S. government spent like close to $2 billion on the um, development of the Moderna vaccine. And I think total now, including purchases, has spent over $10 billion um, to date on the vaccine in general. That gives us a lot of leverage with these companies to be able to say, we've, we've funded this, taxpayers have funded the production of this vaccine, and taxpayers want to like see that be used for public ends. And, and currently that's not what's happening. The vaccine has been monopolized by Moderna and by Pfizer and the other major pharma companies to make a lot of money off of them. And so we've seen a bunch of new um, billionaires to the Forbes billionaire list and tens of billions in profits for these companies who are explicitly not sharing the waiver. They've been asked to do so voluntarily, and they, they're explicitly not doing that. So one of our other demands is for the U.S. government to use the power that it has to really share the recipe and, and compel these companies to do so. As far as we can tell, we have the power under the Defense Production Act to be able to say this is like for national security. We need to use these patents and this technology to address this major global problem. And so um, we, we really want to have a more transparent conversation about the law. Um, and that would be a, a major step towards getting vaccines for everyone. That was Ben Levinson, Deputy Director of Justice is Global. Learn more about the campaign to close the global COVID vaccine access gap by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org. 
where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on CKDU in Halifax, Nova Scotia, KPFA in Houston, Texas, KIDE in Hoopa, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mika Ta. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>